Welcome to our show, Holding Ground. My name is Laura Richer. I'm a psychotherapist and the owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. Each week, I'm joined by another therapist from the Anchor Light team to tackle important topics in mental health and psychotherapy. Our goal is to promote well-being by normalizing mental health challenges. We are here holding ground for you every Tuesday morning at 9.30 a.m. on KKNW. Welcome to Holding Ground, the show that brings you a little bit of everything in the world of psychotherapy and positive mental health. I'm your host, Laura Richer. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. And today I am joined by a special guest, Brenda Zane. Brenda is the host of the podcast Hope Stream. That is a fantastic resource for anyone who is dealing with an addiction, has a loved one dealing with an addiction, or just wants to become more informed and educated about substance use disorders. She's also the creator of The Stream, which is an online support group for parents who are dealing with a child who is struggling with addiction. So Brenda, thank you so much for joining us again today on Holding Ground. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'd love to have you share with our listeners just a little bit about your background and and what brought you to this kind of work. Well, I went through about five years of really, really difficult, um, I would call it torture of Mm -hmm. having my teenage son um, go through, you know, struggling with substance use. It eventually ended up um, that he was really really very addicted to um, pills, various prescription pills, non-prescription pills. And so we, uh, we got through that. It was extremely difficult, extremely traumatizing as a Mm. family. And so because we're now in a healthier place, I just felt like I needed to give other families some hope and some perspective and some guidance that I learned along the way. So, you know, not untypical to a lot of people that go through something really difficult and then, and then turn that into something that can help. Uh, So that's what I do today. And that is such important work. So tell, tell me a little bit about the stream and how you help support parents who are going through, through this, like you said, torture, like you went through with your family. Yeah, the stream is, it's an online community. And I know that's a little hard to kind of like wrap your head around, like what's an online community. Um, People are pretty familiar with Facebook groups, I feel like at this point. So this is not a Facebook group. I think that's an important distinction because we're, we're completely separate from all other social media. And it's really an online, um, the way my members talk about it is that it's an online oasis or respite where they can come they can connect with other, this is specifically for moms, other moms who are going mm-hmm. through this. And, and I know we're going to talk about stigma today too. And mm-hmm. part of the reason why they need this online community is because they can talk to each other without any of that stigma. They can say, oh my gosh, my, you know, I saved my daughter from an overdose last night using Narcan and nobody freaks out and nobody thinks she's a terrible mom because her daughter's using heroin. You know, it's just a place where they can learn from each other, um, get that encouragement and kind of keep going another day when things are really, really hard. That is so important. And I was, so I was listening to a podcast the other day on eating disorders and they were talking about how that was once the most, uh, fatal mental health disorder, but it has since been passed by addiction, specifically opioid addiction is now currently the most fatal mental health disorder. And I was thinking about how concerning and alarming it is that 
addiction, the most fatal mental health disorder is also the most stigmatized disorder, which when we have stigma around anything, it's going to prevent people from wanting to be open or seek help. Um, and so I know that's something that you work with, with families all the time. What do you, what do you see families encounter or what did you encounter personally where stigma was getting in the way of people getting treatment or getting the support that they need? Well, yeah, it is, it's a huge problem. I, when I was going through it, um, I didn't know anybody else who was going through it. So I just figured I must be the terrible parent because if I was a better parent, my son wouldn't be doing this. And so um, that's kind of the message that you get um, subliminally, Mm -hmm. you know, through media, through friends, because all of the images, everything that you see around substance use, especially for young people, for teenagers Mm -hmm. and, you know, young adults and their early twenties is like, you see the picture of this guy in an alley with a needle in his arm. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I just have this normal kid who's trying to go to high school. And so, um, I, I was really impacted by that because I didn't want to reach out for help. Um, I didn't want to raise the, the red flag and say, Hey, my son is really struggling and I am terrified because he's taking pills and he's doing all of these things. So I think what families encounter is they keep it very quiet. They might tell a, you know, a therapist, if they have one in their life, they might tell um, a physician and hopefully those people can plug them into the right resources, but it really holds parents in particular off from seeking help because they try to solve it on their own. It's like, okay, if I'm just a better parent, if I'm stricter, if I, do, you know, punish more, if I ground them more, this is going to resolve. They try to parent their way through it, which I can just say for the most part doesn't work because this is a mental health issue. You need professionals, right? You need a Laura, you need somebody Mm -hmm. to help walk you through that. Um, So people just stay unhealthy longer. And today, you know, in in the age of fentanyl, that's every day is just uh, another ticking time bomb, really. And that really struck me in a conversation that we had the other day. You shared some really alarming statistics about what's going on with uh, fentanyl use right now. And remind me, what were some of the numbers from this past year, just roughly, of of people who who died of, of overdose? It was yeah. It's so it's um, it's just terrifying, and it's kind of hard to wrap yeah. your head around. So. Yeah. In 2000, between um, April and May of 2020 to 21, so just um, this past year, there were 100,306 drug overdose deaths in the U.S. And those are ones that's probably underreported just because there's circumstances, obviously, where there's complications and they can't necessarily, Mm -hmm. um, you know, call it an overdose. And out of those, about 75% of those are from opioids. So people are also, you know, experiencing overdoses from meth or from cocaine, uh, things like that. But 75% of those are from opioids and those are illicit ones. So it's not, I went in my medicine cabinet and got this, you know, the uh, Oxycontin that my doctor prescribed. It's our kids and young people and, and older people who are getting uh, non-prescription, so man-made, illicitly made pills that include fentanyl in them, and there is n- no science to this. So you've got people in Mexico, 
mixing up, you know, batches of pills and they, they stamp them and label them to look just like a regular Oxy or a Percocet or a Xanax. So people are getting these pills. Some people know that they have fentanyl in them for sure, because they've gotten to the point where they need that level, uh, you know, their um, tolerance has built to that level. But you have a lot of kids, younger kids, tweens and teens, 16 year olds um, who are getting these pills. They think they're an Oxycontin. They think they're a Xanax or Percocet, which on its own, if you took one Percocet, you're not, you know, you're probably not going to. Right. One from a pharmacy that we know exactly what's in it. Yeah. But when it was, you know, illicitly made in Mexico and in the back room somewhere, and it, it may or may not have enough fentanyl in it to kill you. And just to give people perspective, the amount of fentanyl that will kill you is about three grains of salt, about that big. Wow. So if you're thinking of a pill, there is, it's just complete Russian roulette. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, it might kill you and it might not. And so those hundred 100,306 people, that's the equivalent of a commercial airline crashing every single day and every single person on that airplane dies every single day. And that's been going on for over two years at that level, over, you know, 275 people a day. So it's just, it's, um, you know, with COVID, it's really taken a back seat. and, And so this is why I'm super happy to talk with you and to try and just let people know that this is going on. And it's, it's just so tragic and so massive that it's, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you today, because the stigma piece of it that is keeping people from really wanting to, to get treatment is so incredibly dangerous right now because of how, like you said, it's Russian roulette. It's how dangerous it is. You don't know what you might be getting if you're buying buying pills, you know, outside of getting them from your doctor. And so avoiding getting treatment has actually been fatal for many people where they thought, and I know that you have some specific cases that you've worked with where it was kind of questionable, like, does my child really need treatment? Um, You know, they're, for the most part, they're doing okay. What's some of, some of the things you see in, in that, some circumstances like that? Right. That, that is what I think I'm trying to get on my soapbox about is yes. um, there are so many kids who are experimenting, you know, teenagers experiment. That's just mm-hmm. the way it is. Yeah. So we have a lot of kids who are not addicts. These are not drug addicts. They are young kids who, you know, 20 years ago, they would be like experimenting with a joint. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is going to happen no matter what we can't stop that. And so what these kids are not realizing is the pills that they're getting are leth- you know, potentially lethal. It'd be like if somebody was handing you a, a beer at a campfire you know, on a mm-hmm. beach when you're 15 and you're sneaking around and it's really yeah. exciting and that beer is half cyanide. It's like, well, yeah. it might kill you, but it might not. So that is what we're dealing with today. And so we have kids and unfortunately in the community and the stream that I Post, you know, we've had moms who have lost their kids who are experimenting. Um, They are getting these pills through social media. So one in particular, her son got a pill from Snapchat, you know, somebody Mm -hmm. on Snapchat was offering them and he took one and his friend took one and he did not wake up and his friend did wake up. So that's the reality of what's going on. And I just don't know that parents are aware of that. 
Um, I don't know that kids are aware of that. I think, you know, kids in general have, um, just because their brains aren't fully developed, as you know, right. Um, they think they're invincible. Like they're never going to happen to them. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I was the same way. It's just the nature of being a young person is you don't believe these things are going to happen to you. And right. so as parents, I think we need to just be really aware and to have those conversations with our kids. Don't be afraid to have the conversation and say, Hey, what are you seeing at school? Do you know anybody who's overdosed? Because I promise you, these kids are experiencing overdoses and they're ending up in the hospital and then they're being home, sent home the next day and the parents are wigging out because it's mm -hmm. like, what do I do now? Yeah. And there's just not a lot of help. So it's a really, it's such a unique and horrible um, you know, situation that we're in today. Well, and even the going back to, to uh, around stigma, there are things that we can be doing to really help save lives. For example, you had uh, told me you recommend to parents, hey, if your kid is coming back from treatment or you are aware that your kid has been experimenting, that you should have Narcan in your house. Narcan could literally save their lives. And yet there is even some challenges to, to getting that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, um, so I went to a drugstore, I won't name it, but I mm -hmm. went to one of them, you know, the big drugstores here in Seattle, uh, to get Narcan because you've got to have it in your house. Mm -hmm. And I, first of all, the pharmacist did not think that they had it. He said, uh, I don't think we have that. And if we did, you would need a prescription, which mm -hmm. is not true. So mm -hmm. that's one myth to clear up. You do not have to have a prescription. There's a standing order in all 50 states that you do not have to have a prescription to pick up Narcan. Um, so that was one thing that I had to kind of educate the pharmacist on. And then I was really looked at like I was a drug dealer or I was an addict, like why does she want this stuff? Because what it does, if you're listening, you don't know, Narcan is basically the EpiPen for opioid overdoses. So if somebody has taken a pill, it has fentanyl in it, or they just, for whatever reason, are experiencing an overdose with opioids, fentanyl, uh, Narcan will, can reverse that. And it won't cause any harm. Let's say they're using meth or cocaine mm. or, or something else. If you use Narcan, it's not going to harm that person. So you, you just really need to have it on hand. So if you're getting stigmatized at the pharmacy for trying yeah. to do something positive and, and a step in the right direction, that's, that's just not, it's just not acceptable. No, it is not acceptable. And, you know, I mean, if I was a parent of a teenager, even if I didn't even suspect that they were uh, dabbling in drugs, I would want to have that in my house. You just, like you said, you just don't know. And they don't know what they're getting. Fentanyl is so strong. You, three grains of sand could be something that's fatal. It's, it, yeah. it, it should be very easily accessible because it's so effective. I mean, it can, it can save someone's life. Well, yeah, it saved my son twice. So mm. my son would not be alive if it wasn't for Narcan. And, you know, it's, it's just something that it's a nasal spray. So this isn't a complicated thing. If you can administer right. your, um, you know, allergy spray in your nose in the morning, then mm. you can administer Narcan. And the fact that that will save somebody's life potentially is, is so huge. Um, so yeah, the, you know, the pharmacies need to do better at not treating people. And I'm not saying every pharmacy, cause I have, you know, friends who have gone in and they've been very well supported, you know, pharmacists has taken time to make sure they know how to use it. So 
this isn't, it's not like every single pharmacy is like this, but there are mm-hmm. those. And I, and I was thinking when I w- was going in to get it, what if this was my son when right. he was in his use, who looked like a drug addict, right? Like right. he, he looked the part because he was the part. Right. And what if he was trying to do that? Um, that, that could have really turned him away and mm-hmm. caused a really bad situation. Not only to mention that um, it can cost if you're not, if you don't have insurance, two doses of Narcan, it comes in a two dose pack is over $120. So if you're using drugs, you are not going to spend $120 on, Narcan. on that. Yeah. It's just not or have access to it when you need it. Yeah. We need to yeah. do better at, at getting yeah. it out. And it can be, it can be um, obtained from like a, you know, community health center, but mm-hmm. it's just, it's another example where we just need to do better for, for people who are struggling. So I know that you are not a medical professional, but, but having lived this experience and supporting parents who are going through this experience, what is some of your best advice for someone who's, who's dealing with a child who has an addiction and really wants to get help? I would say that um, you're going to hear a lot of conflicting advice. Um, so just know that there is, you know, substance use and addiction. There's not one like silver bullet that's going to solve this. So you're going to hear a lot of conflicting advice. But what has been shown in research is that using um, a method to keep a relationship with your child and to keep the communication open and to not shame them is much more effective at getting them to move toward treatment than shaming them, blaming them, kicking them out of the house, letting them hit rock bottom, you know, sort of the old model of the fifties of like, Mm -hmm. you're on your own. Good luck with that. You're cut off from the family. Um, So there is lots of research and I'm happy to provide that if you want it, but there is research that shows um, there's a method called CRAFT, which is community reinforcement and family training. You can look that up. It's an mm-hmm. incredible model for, and this is what I ended up using with my son is you, you don't encourage their use and you don't encourage the behavior that you don't want to see, but you do encourage the behavior that any good behavior. And it's really an interesting, it's fascinating to watch it work because it works and people can't believe it works because it's so um, positive. Mm-hmm. And if you have a child who's struggling, life can get pretty negative. And there's just a lot of um, ickiness, right? You're you're seeing your child really hurt themselves. You're losing, um, you know, contact with them. You're grieving the things that aren't going to happen or may not Mm -hmm. be happening. You know, they're not going to college, not going to um, prom, you know, they're not holding on a job. So craft really helps move people through that in a positive way. So that's what I see. And I see moms in particular in, in the community will say, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. It's working, you know, and it's just a way of being and a way of being in a relationship with somebody that when you think about it, you know, let's say you're overweight and your family is like, well, Mm -hmm. you're cut off until you get down to your ideal weight. You are out like out of the family. Yeah. Yeah, that's you can't come to Thanksgiving. You can't come to. So if you put it in that kind of a light, if you think about it in that way, they're just struggling with finding a way to cope with life. So shaming somebody for that, whatever method they choose is just 
really not productive. Not productive in any way. I mean, there's tons of, of research on, like you said, any sort of issue that shame is not an effective uh, tool for long-term behavior change, especially when you're dealing with something like an addiction. Somebody who's struggling with addiction is already living in shame. They additional yes. shame piled on is not helpful to what they're what they're needing to get into recovery. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just a lot of education. I think helps to understand if you if you can understand what somebody's going through and why they're doing what they're doing, then it's a lot easier to have empathy for them and and figure out how to be in a relationship with them that will help them versus like hurt them. Yeah. And I think the other thing that maybe, you know, the old model of, of shaming someone and letting them hit rock bottom in order for them to be inspired to get treatment. I think that still is in our awareness as a, as a society, as a culture. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that especially opioid use is, is going to be different than some other addictions because it changes your brain chemistry. And so somebody who's addicted to opioids actually oftentimes, I would say most of the su successful outcomes, um, need some form of medical treatment in order to recover from their addiction. Otherwise, the cravings and the impulse to use is so overwhelming that it's challenging to, to move past that. Yes, 100%. 100%, yeah. Yeah. So in destigmatizing this and seeing it as a medical issue that needs treatment, it, it would be so effective. But I know one thing that kind of surprised me when we were chatting the other day is even certain types of therapy that are proven to be effective aren't, aren't covered by insurance. Is that accurate? That unfortunately that is accurate. Um, you, especially for young people. So if you're talking about anybody under the age of 18, it is very difficult um, to find a resource. I mean, you, you might have insurance and you can send them away to a 30 day type of inpatient treatment program, but 30 days is a drop in the bucket. So mm. it's very rare that you could send your kiddo to a 30 day treatment program and have them come out and be fine. So long, long-term, you know, three months, six months, a year is really what they need. And a lot of those are not covered. So there is a, a parity act, a mental health parity act that should cover those things equally, but you have to fight like and hire lawyers and companies to help you do that to get those covered. So there's even stigma in that in in the medical oh. system to to say, oh no, we're not going to pay for your your son's food, bedding, or or any of that while he's at wilderness therapy. But if my kid was in the hospital with leukemia, all of mm -hmm. that would be covered. His bed right. would be covered. His food would be covered. So it's very frustrating for parents. Um, and it's just, it's financially super challenging um, to get coverage. That is so frustrating. And, and again, a great example of how the system itself is perpetuating the stigma around people who need, who need help with addiction. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, so well, we just have to do so much work to do, which is why I think it's great that we're having these conversations. And um, I want it, can you tell everybody where they can find you in case there is someone who would like more information or has a, a child that is struggling with addiction and what would like some more support? Sure. Uh, my website is brendazane.com. So that's pretty easy. Or you can just Google Brenda Zane. I come up. Um, then the community that I host is thestreamcommunity.com. And that's for moms. So I don't, I don't have dads in there. Um, but you, if you're a mom and your kiddo's struggling, you can join us there and, and we'll scoop you up and get you some support. 
Fantastic. And we're going to be continuing some of these conversations into the new year because it's so important to get some education out, I think, around um, fentanyl use. It's become such a lethal issue, especially for young people. So you'll you'll hear more from me and Brenda in the new year. That is all that we have for today. Thanks for listening to Holding Ground, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to Holding Ground. You can hear us here every Tuesday morning at 9.30 a.m. on KKNW. I'm Laura Richard, Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. And we'll see you next week.